Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID conversation. Today, my guest is one of our national living treasures, the Reverend Tim Costello. I'd say that most people tend to associate Tim with World Vision and his campaign to keep global poverty as a matter of Australian concern at a time perhaps when many Australians were more concerned with protecting their little patch against boat people and anyone wearing a scarf on their heads. He's also well known for his push for poker machine reform and latterly his call for a raw commission into the gaming industry, notably sports betting. Tim, I understand that COVID-19 has oddly enough been a friend of sorts to problem gamblers, especially those caught on the hook of poker machines. With the pubs and clubs closed, the hunger of that addiction has had nowhere to feed. You see this break in the cycle as an opportunity, at least for reform. What are the odds of this happening? And how far do you want to see that reform go? Yeah, well, good morning, John. And uh, if there is a silver lining, one should be very careful of talking about that with COVID-19. Uh, gambling has been one of the few silver linings. Uh, 1.5 billion dollars saved in the six-week lockdown from pokies alone, over $2 billion when you add in casinos and a lot of... Uh, how, how, how do you get to those numbers? So $38 million a day is lost on pokies. You add up those days, and these are figures now from the uh, gambling authorities, and you arrive at $1.5 billion. Wow. Uh 500 more, 500 million more, another half a billion from the casinos and the uh, the tables. And when you wonder about those figures, firstly, Australia has nearly 20% of all the world's poker machines. If America's blind spot is guns, ours is gambling. It's why we have the greatest gambling losses per head of any nation in the world and losses 30% greater than the nation that comes second to us because we have so many pokies and because they are literally a machine built for addiction. Less than 20% of Australians even play the pokies. Those that play them regularly are all addicted and uh, the machine is literally built for addiction. So uh, I do believe a lot of those people, because um, they've been talking to me and to people in the alliance, have gone cold turkey. They are saying, I'll never go back. For the first time, I've got money in my pocket. I've paid the rent on time. I'm not borrowing, badging money from others or thinking of crime to feed my addiction. I think uh, this has been a silver lining, John. One of, one of the big objections for poker machine reform from the clubs and RSLs and such is that 100,000 people could lose their jobs if they don't reopen. State governments aren't over keen because of the loss of tax revenue at a time when they need every cent they can get. And I do remember Jeff Kennett calling you un-Victorian for railing against what was seen as a gaming-led recovery of the state's economy. Is the reality of job losses necessary pain to disentangle the economy and society at large from a lousy deal with the devil? Uh, yes, but only in part, John. See, for a million dollars spent on hospitality, it creates 20 jobs. A million dollars going through a poker machine, it's less than three jobs. If people still went to clubs and uh, pubs and spent it on hospitality, actually, it's a job creator 
It doesn't take many jobs to empty a poker machine. And mentioning Jeff Kennett, yes, he was the uh, great spruker for pokies, but Jeff Kennett has gone through his own, um, let's call it, repentance journey. He says, pokies should only have been in a casino, which is the case in Western Australia. There's no pokies venues in suburbs, in rural towns. They have less than a third of the problem gambling, and they have higher levels of uh, community participation, sporting participation in eastern states. And uh, the clubs have always claimed, no, we bring you community and sport because of the pokies. Actually, it's a fiction. It's a job destroyer. I feel for the people laid off uh, uh, in the pokies industry, but actually there will be more jobs if we rein it in. Look, there's a, there's a lot of talk about opportunity arising from the pandemic. Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader this week, talked about the opportunity for a reset of national policy and values, uh, what our priorities are, where we could and should be headed as a nation. I think it's a sensible and even necessary idea, as well as being an idealistic one. But again, I, I could ask, what, what are the odds of it happening? And where do you see necessary investment going to make a better Australia? And I mean that for, for all of us. Yeah, I, I think the national debate needs to be framed not in terms of a snap back but a snap forward. So there are certain things in this uh, shutdown that actually uh, awoke us up to possibilities. We uh, saw in the midst of the huge economic pain and increase, of course, in domestic violence and alcohol consumption, nonetheless, clearer skies, cleaner waters, less... Um, uh, congested highways, uh, we actually were given a glimpse that humans, Australians, who have complied very well, could glimpse what potentially could be a better quality of life, addressing what we know we have to address, climate change, what we know we have to address, public transport, uh, greater opportunity for biking rather than driving, uh, Working from home, a whole lot of um, businesses have discovered they can trust their employees to work diligently from home. So do we need to pay huge commercial rents on big office, commercial office blocks and congest our roads all to get there, you know, by nine o'clock in the morning? So I think that conversation is really worth having. Uh, we know whether it's building social housing, uh, Australia's social housing is only 4% of all our housing stock. Why do we have homelessness? We have so little social housing. Scandinavian countries have 20% of uh, all housing stock that's social housing and don't have the homelessness problems. Now, will we take that high road or will we just snap back to the low road? I don't know, but at least there's a fork in the road and a chance to actually debate this, John. Look, um, speaking of social housing, and this is something uh, Labor's been talking about this week, I found it very interesting that with homeless people, they actually have been housed, it's been in hotels, there's been this push to sort of keep people off the street as, because of them being a health issue. That to me seems, though, if you're able to do that in the short term, it, it does seem to me that the scope, the challenge of actually getting homeless people into, into housing doesn't seem to be that big. It's not that big a problem if you really actually pull the old finger out 
and and look to look to solve it. Yeah, look, that is that silver lining. Uh, you 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 see that what were intractable problems. We can't afford it. The budget can't afford it. There's no chance. Actually, were solvable when we came together with a crisis. Homeless people on the streets may be infecting us. Uh, we paid pretty expensive hotel bills and housed them. Now that's not sustainable, but building social housing and putting people to work and dealing with this problem as other nations have is that glimpse of a future. If we can do it in crisis and win the war, can we build for peace? And uh, that, I think, is what I mean by the higher road. We have at least been shown that these aren't intractable problems and we have the means, if we have the will, to actually deal with them. Speaking again of opportunity, one of the many projects that you're involved with, and it's, it's a bit hard to keep up, you seem to be involved in so much, is the Fathering Project, which aims to inspire and equip fathers and father figures to positively engage with the children in their lives for the benefit of the kids. Uh, for too many kids, of course, having their father at home 24-7 at this time is, is, is a bit of a nightmare. Uh, for many fathers, though, this time has offered a chance to become more productively involved in their children's lives. What are you hearing on that score? Look, I, I think a lot of fathers have had a wake-up call as to how much of the domestic chores and parenting and emotional sustenance, the caregiving, their wives do, and that they, you know, being the, the main income earner, uh, were out uh, saying, not my responsibility. This is a very personal thing for me. Uh, when my kids were young, I became mayor of St Kilda. Unfortunately, committee nights were and council at 6.30 most nights of the week, and it was a really difficult time. And whether God or evolution got it wrong, uh, why are we hitting our straps uh, in terms of our careers right at the time our kids need us around the most? And... Having celebrated my 41st uh, wedding anniversary just yesterday, my wife and I were reflecting on how difficult it was when I was mayor and away from home so much when my kids needed me most. Now, my kids thankfully have done fine, but that wake-up call of fathers saying actually uh, just being frenetic and out there and busy the care deficit in our society, which women largely pick up with kids, should be shared. And the Fathering Project just profoundly goes to this. The, the one question all humans have, John, is do I matter? And when you have a father and preferably a mother too, affirming and giving that time and at times in this COVID being your teacher, uh, I think that's profoundly significant in relational and emotional glue for future resilience. What do you think is a question that every father should be asking themselves? Uh, I think every father should be asking what is the most important thing in my role. Usually we go, well, it's to be the out there provider. Actually, I think one of the threats we men are facing is we're waking up to the fact that our, our partners, our wives, not only are as bright as us, but can earn as much or more than us uh, and uh, that's that, that makes some of us feel a bit insecure. But if we can get over that and say, actually, 
my kids need me. They need a father. They need that uh, uh, love, constancy, uh, just watching them at sport uh, and commenting, that presence that women with uh, often higher EQ just intuitively get. So I think for fathers it's what's the most important thing that I can do is really the question. Do you think one problem is the psychology of many workplaces? There's a sort of there's both either competitive uh, aspect to it. There's a an idea of the calling upon you to commit everything. I see that one of the possible changes to that is the ability to work at home. That that may, although I think it, it can be quite complicated working at home and it can be demanding. And I think you end up actually working even harder. You sort of have this become competitive with yourself. But I think maybe away from some of the, uh, the the social demands, the psychological demands of the workplace, that that might actually be of some help to to you as a parent. I, I think this is a an inward mental framing issue. The framing issue often for us men is that significance, legacy, not to mention extra income, comes from climbing in our career and working very hard and. Uh, the leftover bits uh, for family. I think when you reframe that and say, actually, uh, family and community and being the footy coach or the uh, the, the netball coach is, a, in a mentoring sense, as significant a legacy as anything I might do in my life, you start to reframe it differently. And then you, then you make the choice about working from home, which is complica- complicated, as you said, or working sensible hours and saying no to the promotion, which might be more pay but far less hours, but things that actually matter, that uh, that being a coach, a volunteer, a mentor, a caregiver, uh, I think that framing is is the mental. And I've, I've noticed in COVID-19 that's, that's been true for me. I always thought my overseas friends I'll catch up with when I go to a conference uh, or if I travel overseas, suddenly... I thought, actually, I'm just going to Zoom them. And we've had these wonderful catch-ups on Zoom and suddenly I've realised I don't need to fly. I don't need to go to that conference. I actually can build that relational connection and uh, even do work by Zoom. And it was only a mindset that was a block in my mind and uh, thanks to COVID-19 has unblocked, John. One thing I've I've realised as I got older was that I actually had to think about how I was parented and how I was fathered. My dad's a great guy, you know, and he's an incredibly accomplished person and he's got a lot, a lot of love in him. But I actually had to disentangle myself from some of the things that I inherited from him, as, as I think he probably had to do from his dad and and I think as all, all of us have to do, we have to have a, a, an awareness of where we've come from and, and what shaped us and whether what's been good for us and what, what, what has not so much been good for us. But I do, I do wonder, struggle with the idea sometimes, you know, is there something in men, do we actually have a bit of an innate thing that kind of works against us in terms of, of building um, uh, gentle, harmonious lives? Yeah, I, I identify with what you said about your dad. I um, have written my autobiography a lot with a little and most of it's reflecting on my father. He's died. My mum, who's 90, nearly 91, read read it and said, wow, Tim, I didn't realise how much your father was still in your head. And really the writing of the book 
was disentangling my enormous respect and awe and maybe even his hold on me, but realising Dad never cooked a meal in his life. Mum cooked absolutely every meal and Mum did most, though she was working as a teacher, uh, even when I was young, she did most of the domestic work. Uh, And they were blind spots that actually had shaped me and I can't explain it except perhaps my generation, John, yours and mine from cavemen days just saw ourselves as the hunter-gatherers and it was the women back in the cave doing the caring and the cooking. Uh, But uh, thankfully my sons, two sons, have actually, they're thoroughly reconstructed men. (laughs) They cook and they're much more in touch with their feelings and they get equality with women. It's interesting just in a generational sense to observe the differences. I actually raised my oldest daughter on my own from when she was a baby and the, turning that around, you, you actually, uh, of course, are, are vulnerable to making all sorts of mistakes, which I did. And I guess that's the other thing. It, once you really get involved with your children's lives, whether it's by necessity or because you've got the opportunity, uh, you've got much greater opportunity to make, make serious mistakes. So I, I find I'm actually still trying to make up for various mistakes that I made when the kid was, say, six years old or eight years old, now that she's, now that she's 30. <laughs> I, I plead guilty on that too. But, look, my, my encouragement when I'm asked about this to parents is kids rarely do what you tell them. They often end up doing what you do. And it's a mystery to me. I wasn't always a present father that my kids have ended up doing a whole lot of things that uh, express my values and I'm very proud of them. But I look back and, uh, you know, I I fathered like my father fathered me and it was much more authoritarian and a bit remote and a bit you all shut up and listen to me because I know the truth and if you listen long enough, you will know the truth too. I... Uh, I look back on those mistakes, John, and regret them. But uh, the encouragement is my kids have ended up doing what I do. That's all you can hope for, I think. Look, last week I, I wrote a piece about a study that found people who attended religious services were much less likely to suffer deaths of despair. There's actually a lot of research that suggests that when people go in search of God or something like God, uh, their well-being and resilience is in is in better shape. There's even one study I read that if you that people who actually open themselves up to the big questions uh, end up having a greater sense of well-being. But we also published at the New Daily this week a story about the mystic and medium business doing a great trade at the moment during during this pandemic. An echo of the spiritualist movement that arose in great numbers at the end of the First World War and to some extent through the Spanish flu pandemic. I'm interested in your experience of people who have turned to God, or at least to the big questions, when life got tough for them and for when they, uh, say, felt felt threatened. Yeah, look, I uh, this is my own journey in my own autobiography, uh, a lot with a little. It's actually a story of why faith has been so important for me. People uh, go, you know, we like Tim Costello on his social justice or other issues, but spare me the religious stuff. Well, actually, 
without explaining my faith, the other things I've done make no sense, John. It's essentially been for me, in faith terms, a quest for meaning. And I think all of us as humans are thrown up on this stage called life. We didn't choose to be born. Uh, we certainly didn't choose the, the material circumstances often of this stage. You know, I could have been thrown up in East Timor or somewhere else. I'm blessed that I was here. Um, but what we share is that existential angst, if I can put it, that uh, having not chosen to be born, knowing that we will die, what is the point? Uh, what is the point? <laughs> Why are we here? What is worth doing? And I think faith, uh, and you can do it in philosophy in other ways, is the most profound human longing to work out the point. So does my life matter? Is there some purpose? Where do I find meaning from? I think that is incredibly important to uh, for depression-proofing and drug-proofing yourself and uh, crisis-proofing yourself. Those things happen, but those who have a transcendent meaning actually get it. You know, I, I, I think I quote in my uh, autobiography, Viktor Frankl, uh, he survived Auschwitz. Uh, very few did. He said the only question in Auschwitz was, would we survive? He said the few of us that survived had a more daunting, terrifying question. The question, survived for what? Now, our circumstances thankfully haven't been Auschwitz. They've been very blessed for most of us in Australia. But it's still a haunting question. Survive for what? What is worth doing? How do I live? That's the values question. Uh, and is there a point to it? And I think that's the, uh, the purpose of faith. Certainly that has been true for me, John. It's an interesting one, especially if you've grown up as I did. My grandfather was a, an Anglican uh, missionary and minister. He, he was also in the First World War, kept a diary in Latin, very interesting guy. And I, when I was in my early, even when I was in my early 20s, before he died, I was very comfortable getting down on my knees next to him while he prayed and I'd, I'd read the Bible. But by that stage, I didn't actually have a belief in, in, in the metaphysics of God. I sort of had an appreciation of the message and as a, as a moral guide. But then as I got older, I realized that even if I was essentially godless in the sense of the metaphysics of things, to keep struggling with the question itself had a lot of value. You know, where am I in this and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I a piece that Nick Cave put out where he said the coronavirus has brought us to our knees, it's presented us with the opportunity to be prayerful, whether we believe in God or not. He said uh, it has dis dismantled our constructed selves challenged our presumed needs and desires. And um, he actually says it's really, as he does, important to pray, even though I don't believe in God. Uh, it's important to pray. It's the purest offering to the world, our prayers, uh, expressing our vulnerability and, and grace. So uh, I, I was quite fascinated that Nick Cave uh, not a believer, was doing a defence of prayer. 
Listen, you actually started out studying law in the late 80s when you were stationed at the St Kilda Baptist Church. As part of the outreach program, you started a legal office where you practised as a part-time solicitor. Did you ever find those two roles, the church minister and the lawyer, coming into conflict? Less so than the clients. There were clients, you know, who'd committed crimes or wanting a divorce, stepping into a legal practice that was in a church. <laughs> so they... That would be a little bit odd. Um, no, look, my, my understanding of faith is that it's actually there at the intersection of all of the rawness of life. You know, the, the Hebrew uh, book of Psalms in our Bible is really songs of worship that are full of doubt and pain and rawness. Uh, you know, if uh, our hymns today, if they were true to the Psalms, should be hymns about redundancy and cancer and divorce uh, because that's actually the rawness of what you bring in worship your full self to God, trying to make sense out of things that are arbitrary and unfair. So uh, I didn't find that clash of being a lawyer minister, which I did for 15 years, difficult, John. Maybe some of my clients did. You've talked about the push by the federal government to uh, have laws uh, surrounding around, you know, religious protection, religious freedom, uh, and you've said that uh, Christians should sort of suck it up. I'm not sure that, I, I don't know how many Christians really care about it that much. It, it seems to be more a, um, a protection of people of who they can hire and who they can fire and who, who they can do business with. Are you much concerned that this is an issue that will, as soon as the pandemic sort of quietens down, that it's going to be an issue like that uh, that will again be taking up too much oxygen uh, at, at a political level? Yeah, look, I, I, I am concerned about this one. Uh, I believe that there are different sovereignties, plural sovereignties of how I live my life, if I'm a Christian, by the church calendar and by a a different set of uh, values to what the secular state says is the norm, we should permit that and celebrate that. Secondly, I don't think you can have multiculturalism without protecting multi-faith, which is the engine behind multiculturalism. It's not just a, I like kebabs, but actually there are devout Muslims who make those kebabs for whom it's an expression also of their culture and their faith. But I think Australia, by and large, has got this one pretty right. And I was saying in that article, when Christians are crying, we're the victims and we're being persecuted. Sure, there's some secular hostility, but that's not persecution. Uh, secular hostility just says we, we don't think there is a God and we don't think you have acted very well and in ways the church with its manifest failures in uh, child abuse uh, should be wearing some of that hostility. But to say then we're persecuted, uh, that's why I said suck it up, which is just a paraphrase of Jesus saying turn the other cheek. Don't, don't expect that you're always going to be dominant and have your way. So I think we've still got a way to travel on this. There should be respect for religion and for its uh, expressions but there shouldn't be such privileged dominance that it's allowed to hurt, discriminate in other directions. So I'm, as always, finding myself in the middle, the most dangerous place to be. National spending on overseas aid has, has dropped. It's been pulled back. 
we've now gone through this crisis and we're going to be trying to come out of it. Our own economy is going to be um, struggling uh, and there's a lot of work to bring it back to health. Are you concerned that our relationship with uh, and our, our keenness to help people overseas will be will be diminished as we sort of sort of struggle to get our own house in order? Yeah, I'm very worried about this. Uh, what uh, your listeners should understand is that Australia almost alone has smashed aid. Uh, we're at zero point two one percent of gross national income. The Brits are at zero point seven percent. The Dutch at zero point eight. The Scandinavians at zero point nine. We promised 0.7% of gross national income as our promise to the world's poor, and we've slashed it to 0.2. Aid was highest under Bob Menzies because Menzies and Conservatives uh, believe that Australia's prosperity and blessing should have an eye to the poor. So the meanness, the slashing of aid, the turning inwards, I think has been a failure of really uh, the Australian... uh, commitment to egalitarianism. Uh, Look, with COVID-19, I believe uh, to cut aid again would be disastrous. None of us are safe while anyone on the world still has the virus. And uh, Martin Luther King's famous uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere is true now of the virus. Infection anywhere is a threat to others everywhere. And uh, whether it's New Guinea, the Pacific, our uh, neighbours in Indonesia, Australian aid that actually helps other poor nations with fragile health systems through this crisis is our responsibility and I'm very fearful it's going to be cut from its record low base already again. So what's life for you like under lockdown and and what are you looking forward to when when you're uh, completely free out, out of captivity? Well, uh, after midnight last night, we in Victoria are now allowed to have five people visitors to our home, so we're looking forward to having some visitors. My wife and I, uh, uh, 41st wedding anniversary, had calamari in our car on the beach, windswept beach yesterday because no cafes or restaurants were open. So I'm looking forward potentially to being able to sit in a cafe, read a paper, have a coffee, have some friends over. Uh, Look. It suited my wife. She's an introvert. I'm a high extrovert. I've had cabin fever. Uh, so I'm, I am looking forward to lockdown easing, John. I've got to say, sitting at the beach having some calamari chips sounds pretty, sounds pretty good to me anyway. I've got to ask this. Do you have a little certificate home on the wall that says that you're a national living treasure? What, what, what do you actually get? Uh, funnily enough, I do. <laughs> when Australians voted on this I, and I was told I was in the 100. I was shocked. I said, uh, is this an April Fool's joke? Uh, I went along to the uh, uh, town hall because I wanted to meet Don Bradman and Dawn Fraser and others who are in that 100, and I discovered that people had paid at Sydney Town Hall $1,500 a ticket to sit at a table with one of Australia's 100 national treasures, but they did not know who that would be their treasure. We're allotted tables to go to. I can't describe the look on people's faces, John, when they realised they'd paid $1,500 to have dinner with me. If it wasn't Tyler Minogue, they at least hoped it would be Ray Martin. And uh, they didn't look too impressed they got Tim Costello. So I've kept that uh, honour in its proper perspective. 
Was it around that time that your brother Peter started wearing a T-shirt that said world's greatest treasurer? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. John Howard introduced us. He was Prime Minister. I think it was 1997, so probably. Look, Tim, it's been great talking with you today, and thank you for joining us, and please keep on keeping on. Thank you very much. It's been a delight. Well, that's it for this week. With the country slowly opening up, please take it easy, keep an eye on your social distancing, and look after yourselves. Thanks for listening.